0: Thank you, Michael, for that beautiful prayer. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all those mamas out there. We know that this day is full of lots of things for lots of people, but for all my kids in the audience, will you do me a favor, real quick? I'm going to help your Mother's Day a little bit. I want you to give a hug to your mama who is next to you right now. Even teenage boys, I see you, Cutlers. (laughs) Hug your mama. Yes, say happy Mother's Day. Yes, it is a special day. It is a day that we get to celebrate motherhood. But for a lot of us, it actually can be pretty tricky. It's a tricky holiday as it falls on a Sunday because my guess is that if I ask you all to close your eyes and imagine what you think about, what do you imagine? when you think of the word mother, my guess is that I would have such a myriad of experiences and such a myriad of images that it's kind of hard to sum them all up in terms of what do we mean when we talk about our mothers? Which puts us in kind of a dilemma because what do you talk about then on Mother's Day? The forces that be decided that it was on a Sunday. So at church, we have to talk about something. So what do we talk about on Mother's Day? What does God have to do with Mother's Day? At first glance, if we really think about it, not a whole lot. Because the reality is, if I asked you again to repeat that experiment we did and to close your eyes and to imagine What God looks like to you? What do you think about when you imagine God? My guess is that the image that you thought about when we said mother is really different than the image that you thought about when we said God. And for a lot of reasons, that makes a lot of sense. Lots of us have conjured images in our head about who God is. Some of us imagine a shepherd with sheep some of us imagine a king on a throne. If you're really creative, you imagine this like booming voice through the clouds with lightning. Some of you imagine Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel and the creation of Adam, and you imagine this God that's elderly and kind of surprisingly muscular, and that is your version of God. If you're like me and grew up anytime from the 70s to the 90s in Sunday school, you have this image of God that looks like a skinny Santa Claus, right? Except you trade the red suit for a blue robe. Right, So you have this image of God in your head that maybe you grew up with. Maybe it's the image that you've had, but it doesn't really look like the image that we celebrate today. And it's odd because we have this image, but in the Bible, God isn't really given a physical appearance. Other than we know that Jesus as God was a Middle Eastern man, we really don't have a lot of description about what the physical appearance of God is. That's because most of the Bible uses metaphors to talk about God. That's what we do when we can't find words for things. We use metaphors. And the Bible has over a hundred metaphors trying to describe God. You can look in Deuteronomy and the Lord is the rock. You can look in the Psalms and the Lord is the shepherd. You can look in Revelation and the Lord is the king. There's tons and tons of these metaphors that exist. But what I noticed when I was trying to prepare this sermon this week is that there's a series of metaphors that we don't really talk about much, a series of metaphors that are kind of hidden, a little dimmer in our mind. And so today, I want us to talk a little bit about those metaphors. I want us to see if we can start to expand the image of God that we have in our head, We have this faint outline of some aspects of God, but let's try to color them in today. Let's try to fill them out. And these metaphors are particularly relevant because the metaphors that we're going to be talking about today is a series of metaphors that I call the God who mothers. And so it feels appropriate that we start to work through what that looks like in Scripture. Luckily, we actually don't have to do that much work because thousands of years ago, people understood that there was something missing about the language they were using to describe God. There was something missing about the metaphor. It wasn't really working for them. And so people, in their attempt to put an image to this thing, this aspect of God that they wanted to describe, they summed it up in one person. And that person was, of course, Mary, the mother of Jesus. For thousands of years, people looked towards Mary as something divine. There was something in God, there was something about her that made her divine. Actually, one of the first prayers that we have written down, it's from 250 AD, goes something like this. It says, Beneath your protection we take refuge, O bearer of God. Do not despise our petitions and time of trouble, but rescue us from dangers. It was a prayer to Mary, because something about that image of Mary felt divine to people. Have you ever seen the the Pietà? That image of Mary holding Jesus after he's been crucified. It's a famous Michelangelo sculpture. That, that image of Mary holding her son after he'd been crucified, after all hope was lost, after he was dead, and still being willing to hold that body so lovingly, her gaze is towards Jesus' face though he is dead, something about that image spoke to people, enough that for the last 2,000 years, that image of Mary looms large in the folklore of Christianity. But as I thought about it more, I started to realize that we didn't need the image of Mary. There is something special about Mary. There is something to be honored about Mary. But all those things that Mary sums up, all those things that people looked to Mary for, we can actually find in scripture if we look hard enough. We can find elements of these aspects of God mothering in scripture. So that's what we're going to do today. We're gonna look at two stories and two images to help us flesh out this picture of God who mothers. So we're gonna start at the very beginning, like I often do, and we're gonna start in Genesis. A, because it's a familiar story, but B, because the actual gender, how they describe God, is not really clear cut in Genesis. So, we're gonna try to imagine this familiar story from a different lens. So, you know the story. God makes a garden. He makes actually the whole earth, and then he makes this garden for his children to live in. And he creates Adam and Eve, and he sets them in the garden. He sets them in the garden, but he gives them one rule one rule. He says, Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And sometimes when I look at this story, when I think about it, I always think it's a little odd that God gives them a rule. Like, they, if he knew that they were going to mess up, why did he give them a rule? But then, then I imagine this as a God who is mothering. And I think, oh, this is no different than me going to the playground with my kids and saying, hey, you see that tall tower there? Don't climb it. Don't climb that tower. Because I know that when you climb that tower, you are going to be tempted to jump off. And when you jump off, what's going to happen? You're going to get hurt. And I imagine God in that garden saying, hey, you know that tree? Don't eat of it. Because if you eat of it, you're going to be tempted. And then when you're tempted, you are going to fall. And when you fall, you are going to get hurt. It's no different than us setting rules for our children for saying that we know better because we can see the whole picture. I want to give you this good thing, I want you to play and have fun, I want you to be here, that's why I brought you here. But don't do that. Don't, don't climb that tall tower. But what do Adam and Eve do, inevitably? Like our kids do, like my kids do, I don't know about y'alls, but like my kids do, they climb the tower. Do they not? They climb the tower. They think, oh. I can't listen to that rule. It looks so good. It looks so fun. I want to go up on that tallest tower. And they do. And scripture tells us, and I don't think we think about this enough, but the image that Genesis gives us is once they've eaten of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, it says the Lord God moved to the garden. They heard him coming, and Adam and Eve hid. In other words, it's like, a mother in a garden saying, hey, where are you? Come out, come out, wherever you are, come out. Literally moving through the garden, trying to find them. And when God finds them, he does what we would all do if we caught our kids disobeying. He freaks out a bit, right? He freaks out a bit, and he gives them a punishment because he knows that if he does not give them a punishment, if he does not hold to those rules that he gave, they will never learn. They will climb up that tower again. So he gives them a punishment, one to Adam and one to Eve. But then there's this other part in that story where after he's given the punishment, after he knows that he has to banish them from the garden, he has to send them out because otherwise they will not learn. Scripture says that the Lord God sewed them clothes out of skin and gave them to them before he banished them out of the garden. What an odd detail to include. Until you think about it as a God who is mothering them, who sees them in the very same way that we see our kids, who sees that they fell, but instead of just saying, hey, you can't do that again, or leaving them, says, let me bandage you up first. Let me provide for your need that doesn't really make sense. Let me put a band-aid on that even though it's not bleeding. Let me tend to you and care for you. Let me show you my love that has no conditions. Despite the fact that you disobeyed, let me show you how much I love you. You see, that image in Genesis, sometimes we read as this wrathful God. As a God who doesn't make sense to us, who doesn't feel human enough, how could he punish his children like that? Until we think about it in terms of filling out this picture of a God who is mothering them, just like we mother our own. A God who holds to the rules that he gives, but loves them all the same. We're gonna look at one more story as we continue on from Genesis. If you remember, I'll fill in the details. So God creates this whole family, right? And he has Abram, and he sends them out, and they have a multitude of family. And as the family gets larger, they eventually end up in slavery in Egypt. And God sends Moses, and he says, hey, take them out, take them out of Egypt, and I'm going to give you the promised land. I've created a home for you. But in the process of getting to the promised land, they complain a lot. It's a long journey. It's 40 years. And so he gives them, God, like gives them manna, right? This food that they can eat so they don't starve. But about halfway through the journey, Moses gets really frustrated with these people because they keep complaining and he doesn't know how to deal with it. So he talks to God and listen to what Moses says to God. He says, did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me. Give us meat to eat. And of course, what I think about this, there's no way I can't connect it. And y'all, y'all recognize this. Have you ever been on a long road trip with kids? Every summer, I drive 14 hours. God help me with three kids under four to Iowa. <laughs> and every ride you have these just like, your worst self comes out, right? They keep asking, and so when I hear this story, the people want meat, they don't need meat. No one needs meat, they're fine. They have sustenance, but they want meat. And I imagine my kids, specifically my son, saying, but I wanted goldfish. You gave me club crackers and I wanted goldfish. And you know how kids get, right? Do they let it go? No, they do not let it go. And the Israelites do not let it go either. They keep talking and talking, mostly to Moses, who gets fed up and says, hey, I don't know how to do this anymore. You're their mom. Figure it out, God. And do you know what God comes back and says? And I think this is probably my favorite God response in the Bible. Listen. He says to Moses, he goes, tell your people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five or 10 or 20 days, but for the whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? One translation says you will eat it until you feel nauseated, until you get sick. But I just love this image of God looking at his people and again, not out of this anger that's deep and righteous, but out of this anger that's like, oh my God, fine, take the goldfish. Take the goldfish, I'll give you the whole gallon thing from Costco. Just, take, just be quiet, just for a second, right? God, in that moment, sometimes I think we imagine him as, again, that thundering voice from the clouds, and he is that too. But sometimes it helps us to understand a little bit more of these stories if we imagine a different voice, a voice that's more relatable to our own, a voice that we understand if you've ever been around children, especially in a long car ride right? That idea of these kids wanting something and you just being like, fine, I'll give it to you. It's this odd loyalty that God has. He could have abandoned them. He didn't need to take them to the promised land. There wasn't any reason that he needed to give them meat. But oddly, God does. It's the strange mothering image, but if we think about it in our own world, we understand that most of us would give the kids the goldfish. And so does God. And he gives them meat, more meat, than they could possibly handle. I wanna switch a little bit and talk about two images because as I was going through, I thought, oh, there's all these stories that I can talk about. But then these two images kept coming up over and over again in scripture. So I'm gonna lump them all together if that's okay. And this first one that happens all through scripture is this idea of a mother bird, a mother bird. And we have it in Deuteronomy, but Jesus says it too, and I'll read that as well. So in Deuteronomy, we're talking about God, and the writer says, like the eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, God spreads wings to catch you and carries you on pinions. Like the eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, God spreads its wings to catch you and carries you on pinions. It's where the idea, that song, On Eagle's Wings, comes from. This idea that God is a mother bird swooping and catching you as you fall out of the nest. And then Jesus repeats that same imagery. In Matthew, he says, he's talking about Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Jesus is talking about that same image of these big wings scooping up your kids and keeping them safe, protecting them from what is inevitable, trying to be that fierce protector in their life. It's like, um, like the mama bearer syndrome, Right? standing in front of a car, pushing your kids behind you. How many of you, when you drive and you have your kid in your front seat, like you reach out your hand, right? It's that same instinct of a wing protecting him. I actually looked up. There's not that many bears, as it turns out, in the Middle East. So the mama bear image wasn't there. But guess what there were a lot of? Birds and large birds. And so this image of a mother bird is what came to mind for the biblical writers. This idea of taking its young and holding them in their wings. All throughout scripture, this phrase is used, and Jesus himself uses it to describe his love towards the people who would inevitably betray him. You see, when we think and color out that image of this God who mothers, we not only see these aspects of unconditional love, of inexplicable loyalty, but also this sense of fierce protection. And the last image that shows up over and over and over again in Scripture. It's this idea of a comforting mother or a nursing mother. It happens over and over again where God is comparing himself to a comforting mother. It's usually in a circumstance where things are really hard, where it's really difficult circumstances, and God is offering his comfort, offering his sustenance. There's actually a name for God, El Shaddai, And maybe you've heard of it in that uh, famous Amy Grant song back in the day. But El Shaddai, which means filler of sustenance. In other words, a lot of people look at that name of God and think and link that image to a nursing mother. This idea that God is providing what the kids need when they cry. There's a passage that I love in Isaiah 66 where God is talking to his people who are in exile. They're in Babylon. They left their home. They don't have really any idea of when they're going to go back. And God says this, I will extend peace to her like a river and the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees. As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you. This image of offering sustenance, of offering comfort, in the middle of trying and difficult times, it shows up again and again and again. And I think the Pieta, Mary holding Jesus, is actually a really good image of that because it's not just that God offers comfort. It's not just that he tries to walk through the pain with people. It's that he holds that position of comfort until resurrection comes. Think about the Israelites in Babylon. He held that comforting position until they were able to return home. Mary, she holds Jesus. She holds that pain until the story changes. It's not so different from when your kid doesn't make the team or the play when his or her best friend betrays them And they come to you crying and you know you can't fix it and you know you can't change it, but you sit there and you hold them and you hold their hand and you make them whatever they want to eat and you sit at the kitchen table and you talk it out. That image of comforting, that image of sustaining, that image of being the source of comfort. God is that for us. God calls himself that for us. And it's a more complete image of this God who mothers. So then, if we fleshed out this picture, the question becomes, well, great. What does that matter? What does it matter if I have a more complete image of God? What does it matter to learn more about God? Let me, in. Let, me let you in on a little secret the more we learn about God, the more we discover who God is, the more we discover who we are called to be. The more we discover and understand and learn about who God is, the more that we discover and understand and learn about who we are called to be here. And it doesn't matter whether you're male or female, That image of God, that full picture of God is available to you. Because, and I've used this phrase a lot today, this phrase image of God, and it comes from Genesis. Because when God made humans, it says God made them, male and female, in the image of God. And theologians for a long time debated what that meant. Did it mean like physical appearance? Did it mean moral or spiritual? And what people landed on was that the image of God, the thing that God made you with, is potential. It is the potential in all of you to be like God. God, when he made you, put something in you that enables you to be like God, to act like God, to live into his image. And by doing that, by living into the more complete image of who God is, You get to be the fullest version of who you were created to be. You get to be in the kingdom here, in this earth. That is part of the spiritual journey of learning what this image is and of living into it more fully. So that means that when we understand that God is not only a rock and a shepherd, not only your strength and refuge, not only a king, but also a God who mothers us, then we can see how every time you sit at someone's bedside when the prognosis is inevitable, every time you put a bandage on a wound that doesn't necessarily need it, every time you give a call to a friend and just stay on the phone for a couple hours because they need it, every time you protect the vulnerable, every time you step in front of that proverbial car, every time that you stay instead of leave, you are acting like God. It is through our mothering that we can be like God. And it is only by acting into that complete image that we can be who we were created to be. Do you know how Mother's Day started here in the U.S.? It started because a woman named Anna Darvis saw something in mothers, and mothering. And so she started these clubs during the Civil War. They called them mothering clubs. And what she did is she brought Union and Confederate soldiers together in these clubs. Because what she understood, what we can understand, is that there is something in God reflected in mothering. And she believed that the power of being a mother to these soldiers, of bringing them together, could change the world. She believed that through mothering, we could be saved, that there could be healing that could happen. We've lost that sense of what Mother's Day means, and that's okay, because mothers are meant to be celebrated, and I hope you do that well today. But there is also a deeper wisdom and understanding that Mother's Day is not just about individual mothers. It's a celebration of a part of God that has always existed and has always existed in you, whether you are a mother, whether you're male or female, whether you're a child or adult. And so my prayer for you today is that as you leave here, that you may be empowered to live into that full image of God that is before you. That when you close your eyes and imagine God, you can imagine a more fuller picture than you were given in Sunday school and that you can start to make moves towards spiritual growth by living in to the God who loves you always. Let us pray. Lord, who is strong and our fierce protector, take us under your wings when we need protection. Stick with us even when we disobey. Lord, we know that we can be like toddlers sometimes, complaining, not knowing why you are leading us where you are leading us, but Lord, thank you for being our mother, for taking us under your wings, for sewing us clothes, for comforting us, for holding us when all hope seems lost. Lord, we pray that that image may live in us, And that we may be reminded with all that we do that we are living in the image that you created us to be in. It is in your name. Amen. For this last song, I've asked Caroline and Michael to sing a song that I think reflects this image of God most perfectly. We'll collect our offering at this time as a response to our worship, so will the ushers please come forward.